You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The Cypem hack looks like a new Shamoon variant. Charming Kitten started prowling through relevant places after the Iran sanctions became more serious. U.S. authorities denounced Chinese espionage, especially industrial espionage, but there are as yet no new indictments or sanctions. Concerns mount over Chinese influence operations, and another Canadian may be in Chinese custody, possibly in retaliation for the detention of Huawei's CFO. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, December 13th, 2018. Cyber news today is dominated by reports on what appear to be the activities of two nation states, Iran and China. First, Iran. There's been an update to the story of the cyber attack against offices in the Italian oil field services company, Saipem. Reuters reports that the attack delivered a new variant of Shamoon wiper malware. The attack took place over the past weekend and was tersely disclosed Monday. As details have emerged over the course of the week, we're hearing more about how this version of Shamoon differs from the 2012 original. One apparent difference is cosmetic. The original Shamoon replaced data with propaganda images, burning American flags, jihadist execution pictures, while this one appeared to encrypt rather than destroy data through overwriting. Upon further review, that seems not to be the case. ZDNet reports that it looked as if the data had been encrypted, but in fact it was simply overwritten with crypto-looking gibberish, garbage data, as an outside analyst told ZDNet. Another difference seems to lie in the malware's mode of transmission. The original Shamoon samples came with SMB credentials that enabled it to propagate across the targeted network. This has led to speculation that the infection arrived through exploitation of remote desktop protocol. The third significant difference is the absence of a networking component. Unlike its predecessors, this version of Shamoon didn't have a command and control server configured. That suggests it was deployed manually and not, for example, by a phishing email. Iran is also being mentioned in connection with another cyber campaign, this one directed at more conventional espionage. The AP is reporting today that Iran's Charming Kitten cyber espionage group was sent out to collect against targets that might yield intelligence relative to sanctions the U.S. has reimposed in an attempt to curb Tehran's nuclear ambitions. Charming Kitten, the AP was told by London-based security shop Serfta, 
went after private email of U.S. Treasury officers involved in sanctions enforcement. Their collection list also extended, the AP says, to high-profile defenders, detractors, and enforcers of the nuclear deal struck between Washington and Tehran. They were also interested in Arab nuclear scientists, D.C. think tanks, and various Iranian civil society figures. We spoke yesterday about DevOps and the desire to better integrate security throughout a product life cycle. We get additional perspective today from Aqua Security's Liz Rice, who advocates a notion she describes as shifting left. I guess traditionally we often see security seen as something you apply to software that's already been written and perhaps has already been deployed. Quite often it's a separate security team who really aren't very involved with the development of the software. So if we're talking about shifting left, we're really talking about involving security earlier in the development lifecycle of that software. But what we're seeing increasingly in a DevOps world is we need to be able to ship software faster. We need to be able to deploy more frequently. And then that means you can't really just be having the security conversation at the end. It needs to be automated. It needs to be part of these automated processes that are deploying software you know, often many times a day. And for a typical security team, uh, how much of a, a culture shift is this? I think it can be a really big shift, actually. Um, particularly if you think about uh, the world of containers, the world of orchestration. We go from, you know, an organization may have traditionally shipped software four times a year, say, and suddenly the security team are asked to deal with software that's being deployed, well, as I say, several times a day. And every time you deploy something, there's got to be a question mark over, well, what is it that we're deploying? And does it have any vulnerabilities? And how can I, as a security person, take responsibility for software where perhaps it's being run under an orchestrator? So I don't even get to control where the software is run. It's up to an orchestrator to automatically deploy software somewhere in our cluster. So what are your recommendations for organizations who want to do this, who want to shift security, as you say, more to the left? Uh, what's uh, the best way for them to approach it so that it uh, so it won't have a negative impact on their team? So I suppose it has to be part of a broader discussion of the adoption of DevOps practices. And and for any given organization, they really need to understand what it is they're trying to achieve. Usually, in, in my experience at least, it's a business desire to be able to shift software more quickly, to be able to deliver functionality to customers more quickly, to be able to be more responsive to change. So I think having everybody on board with that, um, you know, with those requirements, with the um, the benefits of um, moving to this kind of process, if that works for the particular organization, if that's important for them, having everybody understand what they're trying to achieve. And then thinking about it in a manageable way, I, there are lots of really great stories out there from organizations who have adopted moving to the cloud, moving to cloud native technologies. So figuring out what you want to achieve, figuring out what your first project, what your journey should look like by trying to learn from other people's experiences, 
and talking to all the stakeholders from the business side, from the developers, from the operations team and from the security team. I think those would be my key recommendations. That's Liz Rice from Aqua Security. Chinese cyber espionage and a growing penchant for influence operations continue to draw attention from nations that feel themselves most directly threatened. Tensions between China and the U.S. remain high, and they're exacerbated not only by continuing conflict over trade, but also by growing suspicion that Chinese intelligence services were behind the very large, long-enduring attack on Marriott that since 2014 have compromised some 500 million articles of personal information. Sources close to the investigation, as they say, are telling Reuters and others anonymously that U.S. investigators are close to making a convincing case for Chinese responsibility. It's also been noted that 2014 was a big year for Chinese cyber espionage. That was also the year of the big OPM breach that scooped up a great deal of personally identifiable information from the U.S. government. Chinese involvement is widely suspected in that case, too. A new wave of U.S. indictments of Chinese nationals on hacking charges is widely expected, but that hasn't happened yet. An official of the Department of Homeland Security told a Senate panel yesterday that the investigation was still in progress and not ready to move to the next stages. New sanctions are also widely expected, but these haven't materialized either. But the third generally anticipated U.S. response, public denunciation, has happened, and it arrived with some eclat in testimony before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday. Senior counterintelligence officials from DHS, the FBI, and the Department of Justice characterized China as a big threat, maybe the biggest threat, to the American economic and technological place in the world. In committee hearings on non-traditional espionage against the United States, officials outlined a picture of Chinese strategy designed to supplant U.S. leadership. Assistant Attorney General John Demers put it this way, quote, The playbook is simple. Rob, replicate, and replace. Rob the American company of its intellectual property, replicate the technology, and replace the American company in the Chinese market and one day in the global market. Quote. The Senate hearings were also noteworthy for mention of influence operations exercised in universities through China's Confucius Institutes, educational and cultural establishments that have over the past year received increasing scrutiny as centers of government-directed influence. Russian influence operations have long received the most attention, but there are now suggestions that China is mounting such operations of its own. Beijing's style is quite different from Moscow's, running far more toward economic entanglement and tenditious cultural exchange than it does toward trolling, catfishing, and opportunistic gonzo black propaganda. In the UK, MPs are also warning of Chinese presence in universities, but the British problem is seen as excessive coziness with Huawei. As noted yesterday, Huawei's CFO Meng Wanzhou has posted bail in Vancouver as she awaits further proceedings that could lead to her extradition to the United States. Feelings over this matter are running high and in a patriotic direction over in China, Authorities there are believed to have taken a second Canadian citizen into custody in apparent retaliation for Miss Meng's arrest. It will be interesting to see how various advance fee scammers will make use of the current state of the Meng case. Earlier this week, they were using emails in which someone posing as Miss Meng or her agent solicited a couple thousand bucks so she could bribe her jailer and escape. 
She's out now, so that won't be as plausible. A more interesting touch in the scam emails was a veiled promise of romance. That's also probably out the window now that it's generally known that not only does Miss Mung have a husband, but that said husband is with her and helping her abide by the terms of her release. But let's not underestimate the cunning and imagination of the grifters. Sure, it's low cunning, and yes, the imagination is on the mechanical side, but they do find their marks. There's one of those born every minute. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Uh, ben, it's great to have you back. Uh, I had an article on the Naked Security blog from Sophos, and this is about passcodes being protected by the Fifth Amendment. This is a topic we've touched on before. What here is uh, new and interesting? So, as you know, the Fifth Amendment protects you against self-incrimination. So the government cannot force you to incriminate yourself in the commission of a crime. That's one of our most cherished constitutional protections. In this case, which concerned an underage drunk driver, the government thought they could obtain evidence from the driver's smartphone device. So they asked that driver to enter the passcode into his smartphone. And uh, based on that information, they were able to obtain the conviction. The uh, defendant appealed, saying that just asking for that passcode violated his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And amazingly, there's been a lot of case law on this. And it comes down to what's called the foregone conclusion exception or the mm. foregone conclusion standard. So if the government can show that it knows that the defendant knows the passcode, then the Fifth Amendment is not implicated because eventually that person is going to have to open the phone. It is a foregone conclusion 
the government has some proof maybe they've actually seen the individual unlock that phone with that passcode. So it need not go through these Fifth Amendment hoops or uh, these judicial hurdles to obtain access to that information. What this opinion is suggesting for the first time, and what I think is very interesting, is that the foregone conclusion doesn't necessarily apply when we're talking about obtaining the contents of information inside the phone. So what the court in this case made clear is that the government doesn't care about the passcode per se. It's very rarely going to be evidence that a person's passcode is 5643. That doesn't really matter Mm -hmm. for uh, police purposes. What matters is the content inside the phone and whether that content contains information that's incriminating to a potential criminal defendant. And what the court here is saying is it is not a foregone conclusion in this case that information on this individual's phone was going to have relevant information to that person's prosecution. At the very least, the government didn't prove with any level level of certainty that they knew what was on the phone. They knew what they were looking for, and that information was going to lead to the defendant's conviction. So this raises the suggestion, and again, it's just one court, um, and it doesn't necessarily apply nationwide, that there's going to be a higher standard as it applies to the government trying to unlock devices. They will now have to show with some level of particularity that there is something on that device, a piece of information that they know is there in order to unlock it. Otherwise, uh, the defendant has a valid right against self-incrimination. So if we see this applied elsewhere, I think it would have a, a major impact on law enforcement. I mean, because we collect so much in our smartphone and it contains every last iota of information about us, these are, you know, evidence Valhalla's for uh, law enforcement. And if it's harder for them to get access uh, to these devices, then I think that Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination will have uh, more meaning in the digital age. Yeah, it's interesting because this this runs contrary to what I had believed or, or thought, uh, which was that, uh, you know, we've talked about how they could um, compel you with biometrics. You know, they could force you to use your fingerprint to unlock your phone, but they couldn't force you to reveal a password. And what you're saying here is that, no, they could they could compel you through a court order to reveal that password? They could, uh, not according to, to this particular court's holding, but right. several courts have basically upheld that if the government has reason to believe that, you know, that person can unlock their phone, then that does not count as testimonial evidence. And uh, under this uh, foregone conclusion standard and... Um, you know, the, the criminal defendant is going to be out of luck in those circumstances. Hmm. Uh, they will have to unlock their phone. Uh, if they're not, they're going to be held in contempt. And that's the exact thing that the Fifth Amendment right of self-incrimination is trying to avoid. You have these situations where, you know, let's say you have incriminating information on your phone and you're asked to reveal it. You basically have two options. You do not reveal it and you're held in contempt or you do reveal it and you know, you're going to be convicted of a crime. And that's exactly why we have a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. We don't want to put people uh, in that situation. So, you know, one thing I would say about biometrics in the equivalent in the physical world is something like a police lineup where you are identified affirmatively by a witness. And that does not count as testimonial evidence for the purposes of the Fifth Amendment, because you're not really revealing anything about yourself. You're just you know, showing your face to somebody. So I think that's why, at least to this point, courts have analogized biometrics, facial recognition to to that 
non-digital standard. Hmm. All right. That's interesting. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.